welcome and good morning. Uh, I am Akhtar Hussain. I'm a solutions architect uh, with uh, Amazon Web Services. I'm in the healthcare and life science group. Uh, in this session, we will talk about how our customers, like yourselves, are leveraging AWS DevOps and automation tools uh, to, to meet the promises of the cloud. Today, it is my pleasure to introduce to you Torsten Kablitz, uh, Vice President of IT and Cloud Engineering at uh, Change Healthcare. We'll share with you how Change Healthcare has leveraged AWS technologies to build an automation framework that embeds uh, security, best practices, uh, compliance, uh, healthcare compliance, and also um, change healthcare's own policies and controls. Included also is the cost optimization and the performance and reliability and all of the other stuff uh, as a, a, a good architecture should have. We'll look at how healthcare is automating, uh, change healthcare is automating the onboarding of these, uh, of the applications within this framework, and also look at the, this approach, uh, this structured approach, how it has accelerated the migration of existing applications while enforcing the cloud-first strategy for uh, new applications. This success story uh, is not restricted to uh, change health or, or restricted to a healthcare industry. This can be adopted, uh, this, uh, this framework practice and, uh, and the whole uh, uh, practice of how uh, this has been created it can be adopted for any industry. So uh, how, how change healthcare has, uh, you know, an enterprise uh, is internally uh, providing a platform for many of his business units to take it from there and build their own business unit applications around that. So I will introduce Torsten, and I will take him, take it from here. Thank All you, right. Torsten. Well. Thanks, everyone. Appreciate uh, all of you guys making the effort and time to show up for my little talk about healthcare and security. Um, we're going to have a lot of things to cover. Uh, this agenda is just a, a light overview. Um, hopefully, we'll get deep about into some things. Uh, I want to, you know, this this is our approach. Um, it's you know grown quite a bit over time, which is sort of the first place I'm going to go is give a little bit of a um, history of how we got here and what our journey to the cloud is. And then uh, specifically, what are some of the big problems that we had to, that we ran into and then that we solved? Um, Torsten Kappas, thank you for the introduction. Uh, this was kind of funny. I, uh, they used me for a campaign to uh, market um, our company. And uh, then this showed up. A friend of mine sent it to me. Uh, it's in an airport. This thing is huge. <laughs> so if people tell me I have a big head, it's true. There it is. Can't deny it anymore. So Change Healthcare, who are we? Uh, so basically, we're an uh, independent healthcare IT and services company. Uh, we have about, um, well, 
we have about 3.5 billion in revenue, uh, 15,000 team members, and um, out of the $3 trillion that go through the US healthcare system, about 2 trillion of that are processed in healthcare claims through our system. So we operate at scale. Um, so how, how did we achieve our journey to the cloud? And this, this is you know, very interesting from my perspective. So we started out doing a data center approach. We basically, you know, we did not have a cloud-first strategy uh, in 2015. We knew we wanted to explore the cloud and had all of these wonderful benefits. Um, and so our data center guys said, all right, let's, let's take a serious stab at it. Let's create a production account. Let's create a, a non-production account, uh, create a couple of VPCs, and let people start delivering product on this. The data center and the IT people in the data center controlled pretty much everything, which if you have any familiarity with the cloud, is exactly the opposite of cloud first. I mean, they, they, were, they immediately became a bottleneck. We, we couldn't get anything done just because they were already busy running the data center. It's not like their work got less all of a sudden. They, you know, they had the data center job and now they had everybody who wanted to do something in the cloud calling them and asking them for a VPC or access or some other thing. And they couldn't keep up. So we said, okay, you guys all want to do this. Um, just make sure you do it right, make sure you do it securely, and we'll let you do it. Well, it solved one problem. It broke our dam as far as you know, the data center being a blocker. Uh, everybody got interested, people jumped into the cloud, lots of things happened. All those green things are in production, right? So those, yeah, yeah look at that, laser. Um, all the green dots are production level systems. Cool, looks like we had some success. The problem is every single one of those dots is different. And security is going, well, okay, tell me about that one. And it's like, well, I don't know. So some guy built that manually. It's like, wow, really? <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, they're using the cloud. That's nice, but they built it manually and you can't tell me anything about it? So uh, that didn't work because really we had no control over those environments. They were just popping up and they were putting PHI data out there. And as far as InfoSec was concerned, these things were next to invisible. Another major problem. I mean, we had checklists, we had human gates that were supposed to make sure things were safe. Um, luckily, everything was good. You know, we have, you know, we're, we're good people, we're smart engineers. Um, but InfoSec, was not happy. So, what did we do? We went to an automated managed approach. We basically said, okay, we'll take a shared responsibility, very similar to the Amazon shared responsibility model where they take care of the hardware and we take care of the application on top of that. We kind of stepped in the middle of that a little bit and we said, all right, for some of these things, we need to own it. Other pieces, we can let the application teams own. And we also automated all of that. So everything that we, when I say we, let's just say the uh, cloud team, um, so we created a new centralized cloud team, um, everything that they manage is managed through automation. And this allowed us to create new environments. So you can see us you know, basically creating a bunch of environments. Each of those are um, 
You know, each of those squares contain two accounts, one production, one non-production. Each account contains one VPC. This is just our, de our interpretation of a default configuration. There's lots of discussions as to how many accounts you should have, how many VPCs you have. We had lined up our accounts around business units. So our major business units have accounts that they can live in. Um, it's more of a billing decision for us than an AWS architecture decision. And because all of these are created by automation, it really doesn't you know, impact us. If somebody says, hey, I need a new business unit, or I want to split my business unit in half, or do some other work, it's like, okay, we'll just create you another one. So what are we creating? So it's, again, the shared responsibility model, where specifically we build out for an application team an environment for them to live in. And basically, we end up giving them a subnet and saying, all right, you live inside of this subnet, and this subnet has access to a bunch of different things. So starting on the very right-hand side, uh, we've given the InfoSec guys security, we've given them their own environment, their own account, their own VPCs. They, they own that, it's locked, no one else has access to it. We use that specifically so that we can put all of our logs, all of our information in there. So everything that we collect goes into that bucket automatically. We don't even worry about it. Um, second, the green one, is um, our shared services. So all of the things that you're used to having an IT group manage for you, your DNS, centralized logging, your single sign-on, all of that lives inside of that shared services. Um, and by the way, all, you know, back to automation, right? All of these things were also created via automation, right? So we could, if, if for some reason InfoSec said, hey, we need to restart or whatever, I mean, I'm, I'm not gonna, I don't have a scenario for why they would wanna blow theirs away, but okay, we could do it, it doesn't matter. Um, created the same code creates all these environments. Um, so then we have shared services, we use VPC peering to communicate in between these systems. Um, and then we create a prod and non-prod account for the application team, assuming that they're, it's, if they're an, an application team that's already in a business unit that already has an account, then they just get a new subnet. If they're the first application team for that business unit, then we create everything from the account on down for them. Uh, we create uh, their S3 bucket by default. We uh, turn on for that account um, all of the uh, AWS config, CloudTrail, CloudWatch. Uh, we put keys, uh, default keys into um, the key management store. This way we can start encrypting everything that's, that they're requesting. Um, and then we basically build out uh, the VPC. And everything is connected, so CloudTrail, is already sending its logs to um, the security VPC, right? Uh, the flow logs are already setting their logs to um, the security VPC. So everything comes pre-packaged. So as an application developer, you don't have to worry about it. All you have to worry about is basically building out your application inside the subnet that we give you. And you know, back to my automation point, we just repeat that over and over again. As a matter of fact, we, as we modify it, the same code both creates and modifies these environments. So I already mentioned this a little bit earlier. 
One of the things that we ended up doing, so when, as we went towards this approach, is creating a cloud center of excellence. Just a group of people who are dedicated to have a cloud-first mindset and uh, work specifically on getting work done in the cloud. Um, there's a cloud steering committee. They're the ones that basically tell me what I need to do. Um, its representatives are from finance. They're from um, strategic programs. IT is there. The office of the CTO sits there. Uh, so it's a, it's a body of high-level executive decision-making that basically saying, here's the cloud strategy for the company. And then from their prioritizations, I build a plan for what I need to deliver instead of tools and um, automations. Uh, so specifically, we have two teams that do the work. So we have a tools team and we have an operations team. So our tools team built all of the automation that builds those systems. And uh, the operations team are the people who use those tools to build those systems. So there's a, a clear line there. And our customers kind of goes depending on which team you are, right? So um, the operations team, the customers, is a classic application team, right? They'll come up with a request, say, hey, I need something. They go to the operations team. Operation teams take care of it. If the operations team sees, like, wow, this workload is just really hard. We've got to do this over and over again. It's time-consuming. We're wasting 50% of our effort. They'll go to the tools team and say, can you automate this? Because this is, I, either the automation you have is way too much work, which also can happen, or, heck, we've discovered these things that we do manually that we really would need you to automate for us. So the tools team builds the automation around that and helps support them. And then at the very end is our strategic program group. They're the ones that coordinate across all of the different application teams, who's going into the cloud, when are they going into the cloud, how are they going into the cloud, um, so my, my talk is a lot more about what's happening on the back end. I, I'll spend a minute on this, though. Architecting for the cloud is important, right? This, the whole title of this, or included in this, is cloud first, right? So we started with a data center approach. We moved to a cloud approach. Having a cloud first mindset means, really, you need to look at the architecture of your application. And I could do a whole long session about how to architect applications for the cloud. Tell you what not to do is take a really badly performing application that's in your data center, move it into the cloud, and pay cloud prices to keep that up and running. Bad idea. <laughs> so, one of the things that's really helped, well, it kind of steps into my second slide right there, uh, helps us is we came up with a set of heuristics that basically say these are some of the rules that we live by and that we just don't want to break. Cloud first is one of them. We solve every problem thinking about how does it, how do you want to solve it today in the cloud? If I was a startup, right? I mean, if I didn't have all of this baggage with me, all of this legacy stuff, all of the, I mean, I, mean, I dare to say this in, in healthcare, all of these regulations, right? Let's just figure it out. Like, what is the modern, right, cloud first way of solving it? And then let's make sure that it meets our regulatory requirements as well. So that's where kind of security by design comes in. Everything that we build, we build with a security mindset. And uh, least privilege is another one of those great philosophies where, and I'll get into this again a little later, lock everything down by default, right? Don't give anybody access to anything. 
and then have them literally request access. So everything is least privileged, everything is least privileged all the way up the stack. So you know, if I spin up an EC2 instance and I want to connect to it, I can't because the service, the um, security groups doesn't allow any access. And it doesn't allow any access because it inherited a, the um, policy from the VPC that basically says you can't, there, there's nothing here. So you actually have to make a change to the security group enabling access so that you can use it. Um, and then automate everything. I mean, I, I don't know what the level of the room is here, but you're all here at reInvent, so I'm assuming you're very interested. Um, automate everything. Don't, and, and don't, this is why this is a heuristic. Don't break this rule, right? It might be hard. It might be difficult, but it's worth it. It's, it's one of those, it's, it's the same as when we, you know, we used to argue about test-driven development, right? I think very few engineers now would say, yeah, test-driven development, or not even test-driven, but just unit testing and, and having a rich set of tests. You know, most people, that, that, they're already agreeing to that. That's a, that's, that's a proven methodology for writing better code. Automating everything that you're building in the infrastructure, same sort of thing. The, the difference between that, and, and uh, I'll give you a really concrete example. Uh, we had one team that's got, a, they're, they were bigger than we are, than my team. They uh, uh, spend about the same uh, every year um, as far as overall usage in the cloud. Um, they built a major product that um, companies are using. Um, so, you know, it's very successful. And um, it's secure, it meets all of their needs, they're happy with it. Um, but the problem is they have one of them. That's it. If somebody came by and said, hey, I'd like to do that, it would be starting from scratch. They'd have to do it again because what they didn't do is all the work that they did to make it that wonderful thing was basically concentrated on the application, not the infrastructure automation. They can't repeat that. And so when they came to us and they looked at our model, they're like, wow, why didn't we just do that? Why didn't we just spend like the extra 10, 15%, whatever time, 25%, and now have a model where all the other teams could just you know, basically press a button and get started. So focus on security, managed, build to standards, document as you go, and then infrastructure as code. These are all just really critical things. And I'm gonna dig in a little bit on automate everything. So this is funny in the sense that um, I was prepping for this talk and I wanted to take screenshots of both our code and our environment and all that other fun stuff. So I, I will say I broke the process because I just called somebody directly and said, hey, give me access instead of formally creating a ticket. But um, so they said, yeah, sure, we'll give you access, no problem. So I started to collect my slides and um, I went to our Git repository and I saw this at the very beginning, I mean, this was, this was the current event that was in Git, and it basically says, hey, add me to the system, right? So nobody logged onto a console. Nobody made a change to any existing environments. They basically made a change to code to give me the access that I asked for, um, which is great. I mean, this is, this is what I've been preaching for two years, so it's, it's really fun to see it. So what happens? 
So my request goes to somebody, some alien out there, who codes it, puts it into the configuration system. That creates a merge request inside of Git. So um, it's reviewed. So it has a, a um, you know, the same developer can't just go off and make changes to the system. Matter of fact, our Git repository enforces that rule. Um, so that becomes a merge request. Once it's accepted, it automatically gets kicked off by Jenkins. Jenkins starts to orchestrate all of the child jobs required to make this thing successful. It uh, then goes off, these jobs um, go out and build the things that it needs to do. They generate all the cloud formation. They uh, generate the code to delete, modify, change the stack, test the stack. Everything is basically ready to go. It then executes all of that in a sandbox. So it goes ahead and, and basically does a dry run and says, all right, everything is good to go. The results of all of that are then moved to an approver. So there's another gate here um, basically saying, yeah, we're, what we're about to commit to the system looks good and is in context of what we're trying to achieve. Uh, approver says, yep, we're good, sends it on the way, Jenkins picks it up again, um, and then actually starts to execute all of the change sets and makes the changes across all the environments. Our code is over time is optimized, so now it really knows where to go and make targeted changes and doesn't have to, you know, doesn't have to go all over the place, but you get the basic idea. Um, and then the last thing Jenkins does, back to, you know, I, I'm a very, very strong believer in test and test-driven. Matter of fact, I've delivered four products on the cloud at this point. Every single one of them has 100% automated tests. So everything that I do is covered with automated tests, including our build framework. So it's part of what we just, it's part of our DNA at this point. So let's dig into this a little bit further. Um, all of our environments are in code, right? So this is it. This is a screenshot of some of our active environments. All of our configurations that drive everything that we do is there and in code. Specifically, if I open up one of them, and I'm kind of hunting down my change, right? So you can see the very last line there, line 11. Uh, it's got my name on it. That's, that's the update for me, the one I asked for. So I went and found it in code and said, here it is. So from there, um, our code executes and starts to build the cloud formation templates, right? So it's actually looking at putting all the roles together, creating the trust list, grabbing that from the configuration file, and starts to assemble everything it needs to do to actually make that change. From there, it builds the final cloud formation and then executes it. So now we're back, we've got Ansible running basically. It's gonna grab the playbook that was built and uh, execute it against our environments. So what happens when you're done? You, uh, if, if you're a new application team and you just got started, we will put this thing here in your S3 bucket that we created for you it basically says, hey, welcome, right? You're ready to go. Here's all the pertinent information you need to get started. It explains what, you know, where to go. It explains what some of our policies are. It kind of shows you graphically what we did for you um, and basically lets you get started. One of the things that's also an important um, issue that's, you know, one of the things we learned over time is tagging. You know, it's self-evident to a certain extent, but it's extremely powerful. Right, so we make sure that everything is tagged correctly. Um, as a matter of fact, um, we can control access to components 
via the tags, and then we can control those tags. So you can't change the tags, and you can't have access to components that aren't tagged the way they should be. Um, and we are to the point now where if something is not tagged the way we want it to be tagged, we shut it down. So tagging is absolutely critical for us. The notes that there's billing information in here, so now we know how to do a chargeback to your particular uh, instances. And all of these are required and enforced. So it's not like I can sneak in and go, ha, ah, I'm just going to launch something without a billing tag. Nope, doesn't happen. So the other really interesting thing that, uh, that we had to solve was um, AMIs. And uh, this, is, this was such a big pain point that uh, we actually ended up collaborating with AWS on a solution which they're announcing at reInvent um, in the next couple of hours. So um, what you're seeing here is our collaboration with them. Um, and uh, hopefully this will be something that should be in preview. I, I was, um, I'm, they're actually sending me the notes to tell me exactly what I'm supposed to say about this, like today. So we'll see what happens. Um, but the issue is, you need to, we're all in a regulated space, right? We're all used to sticking our operating systems or using some other kind of standard. You need to harden the operating system. You can't just use whatever default operating system anybody wants. Well, if I have to do that, how do I do that, again, in an automated way? And how do I do it so that when I publish my hardened operating system, I give it to the application teams to use, what if they change it? I've hardened it, and it's all nice and wonderful. But remember, I'm not in a data center environment where I've got dedicated IT people who are managing those machines for me, you know, and, and they're the ones responsible for not changing the operating system. I'm empowering my engineers to basically own the infrastructure so they can change all of this stuff. So I need to give them the right thing and then I need to support their workflow, their CI, CD process, so that when they make changes, I can still feel comfortable that they've got the right thing. Um, also, let's say you take an um, image out of the marketplace. What do you do with that? At some point, you need to be able to validate that. That's baked on an OS. Um, so managing AMIs actually turns out to be a pretty big problem. So, this is what we do. We, we, we build it, we validate it, we approve it, we distribute it to everybody to use. Then they build it, validate it, approve it, and publish it for themselves to use. So the same process, basically, and the same code does all of this work. It's just a difference between who initiates it and who is the consumer. So how do we do this? There's lots of things that have happened recently that have made this much better for us. Specifically, we use uh, EC2 System Manager, and they have an automation document. That document allows us to define what this path is going to look like. We basically pull the base AMI out of their repository, out of Marketplace. We then instantiate it. We fill it with all the things that we care about it. Basically, um, the equivalent of sticking it, we use um, the Center for Internet Security's uh, benchmarks for this, actually. Um, then we create a candidate. Uh, AMI, then we create that instance, and then we put our scanning tools on it to make sure that it's all in compliance. If you dig into this a little deeper, um, this is the process slightly more decomposed, right? We grab the base AMI, we instantiate it. We actually instantiate another 
uh, instance running that uh, is basically based on our Ansible AMI. Um, it then goes off and pulls all these playbooks down, those executes those playbooks against the instance, and then that's what ultimately builds the candidate. We, uh, we then notify you that, and, and the you in this can be either us who build it in the first place or an application team. An application team can do the same thing. So um, basically when this thing runs, it basically, uh, when it's done building, it sends a notification to the approver. The approver says, yep, uh, I think this is good. As soon as they say it's good, it goes out for distribution. In this particular case, we're basically, we're still building the candidate, the gold. So what we're doing here is internally, we've made a change. We need to approve it, make sure that we like it before we distribute it and send it out to everybody. So um, once that happens, uh, we basically put the, the ID inside of the parameter store um, for everybody's account. Remember, all of this is automated, so it just happens, you know, automatically distributes to everybody. Um, and then, oh, yeah, this is interesting. Uh, I, we're, we're validating the difference between what happens here and here, slightly subtle. This is build, whoops, sorry, hang on. This is build. So now we build a candidate. The candidate then flows into here, we validate it. Same engine that built it, this basically validates it. So it's the Ansible playbook again, doing all the validation, making sure everything is configured correctly. You could use AWS Inspector. So if that covers your operating systems and your, you know, it's whatever tool you want to use. There are, you know, third parties are out there now uh, playing in this space. Uh, we were a little bit ahead of the curve. We actually worked with the inspector team on um, the operating systems that we wanted protected. So we already sort of had a system here. Um, but as inspector uh, uh, supports more operating systems and uh, does deeper scans, that's a very viable um, solution for this. And then the last thing we do is distribute it. So we basically take that now good AMI and we move it across all of the accounts um, and share it. And uh, the reason the bottom one there is a slightly different color, we can also copy and encrypt it across those accounts. So um, I just wanted to you know, make sure that that was understood is you can either copy it normally or you can do a copy and encrypt. So both of those are now supported, which is great. Because um, you know, it's back to being in healthcare, right? I, I actually tease my guys, if you can't encrypt it, then I'm not even interested in hearing about it because it's virtually useless to me. So, next, scanning. So uh, we use a product called Cloud Health to uh, scan all of our environments. We actually, again, wrote our own initially. Um, we like the CIS benchmarks, so we scan for those. Um, they started to offer that inside of their suite of um, tools, and it didn't make any sense for us to do the same thing, um, both, you know, own it both internally and have a tool that does it. So we just did a comparison, and it worked out that uh, that's good enough for us. Um, so. All the time, this thing is just scanning the environments on the back end. Um, it's, the scan here is, is, is interesting. This is not scanning the operating system. It's not scanning the application. It's, and um, I sort of wish I'd, I'd, I'd had a little, there, there's 
stuff that we're doing that's not on this, um, including building out a, a matrix of uh, uh, shared responsibility across all of not just who owns what, but what territory, what, what are they covering if you were to look at a security landscape? You know, who's got what focus? When, when do you use something like Trend Micro? And what does it cover, right? If you have Trend Micro Deep Security, it covers a certain amount of space. Um, Inspector covers a certain amount of space. Um, scanning for these benchmarks covers a certain amount of space. There's overlap, and then there are, there are areas that, they, that um, uh, are individual. And so what I want to do is cover my entire security landscape with a set of tools that give me basically coverage across the whole system. Um, and uh, we're still, I mean, we have that, but I don't have it visualized. Um, so we use Cloud Health to scan the AWS environment itself. So it's looking at things like, how are your security groups provisioned? What are your VPCs look like? Um, do you have CloudTrail turned on? Do you have CloudTrail turned on across all the regions that AWS serves? Um, all of these things are important things that you need to have. Um, all of these things are things that are in, that are in our base code. Um, so we feel really good about when we spin up an environment. But, and we also, you know, back to least privilege, we don't give anybody access to changing the cloud trail setup. Why, why should we, right? I mean, it's really not going to interfere with their application. It's just back-end Amazon stuff. So no developer can go in and say, oh, for this account, I don't want CloudTrail turned on. But we also scan it. Just in case, you know, I mean, doesn't hurt. They give it to us. Uh, we also use AWS best practices, so we review these. And by the way, this scan, I should say, this scan is um, performed, I believe, weekly. If, uh, if nothing else, it is reviewed monthly by the Cloud Steering Committee. So we publish this every month, and we go through it. And if there are any um, items that require attention, those get attention. I should have gotten attention before we actually went to the Cloud Steering Committee. So, um, But that's the last fail-safe there. Um, whoop, don't do that. <laughs> so cost management. Uh, we use, we're back to cloud health, and um, I'm, I'm not saying that you, know, you have to use them in any way, shape, or form. They're just convenient. Um, so because we tag everything, we get very, and Cloud Health reads those tags, we can slice up all of our spend very specifically. So this is one of my projects, um, and uh, I can tell you exactly, you can see in the back end sort of it, uh, uh, the cost coming down, which is one of the things that we keep working on. Is, I mean, even though this team has, um, when, when they first published, and we're up and running, they were spending $14,000 a month. They are now spending two. Um, and they're running exactly the same application. We just made cost a higher priority for them. And uh, what's interesting, they've come back as an engineering team to me and said, by adding those cost restrictions and, and, and challenging us to reduce our cost, we actually made the application better. So not only did we cut waste out of what we just deployed by default, we tuned it and just made it run better and um, run cheaper. 
So focusing on cost is a really important factor. Matter of fact, um, all of the requests coming back to the strategic uh, program group, all of the requests now that any team wants to go onto AWS and deliver a product, they have to tell us what their budgets are. And we program those budgets in automatically, and we monitor them, and we hold them accountable against those budgets. So um, the, uh, the era of use whatever you want is over, <laughs> at least for us. Um, so our billing tags really allow us to uh, get a deep visualization into that. So um, people that we, uh, we, we like, I've already mentioned them, right? We've got Cloud Health, Ansible, Jenkins. Uh, we use the um, Center for Internet Security. Uh, so this is just a collection on obviously AWS um, of you know, primary vendors that we, we uh, utilize. And uh, wow, I flew through that. I, I, I probably should have slowed down. So um, I did not include a Q&A <laughs> because last time I ran through this, it took me much longer. Uh, but what I will do now is I, I will do an impromptu Q&A and uh, I can always go back to any of the slides, cover them in more depth. Um, they have a microphone here. Up. Can we turn this microphone on, number four? There we go. So if you have any questions. Oh, we already have one. Oh, there was, yeah. Hi, that was, uh, that was really great. Uh, so yeah, I don't work in healthcare, I work in finance, but a lot of what you've presented up there. Same thing, yeah, is... I mean, back to Octor's point, right? The, the model is the same, right? Right. So one of the things that's uh, kind of come up for us is we also have um, established this concept of a syringe that injects things into the cloud rather than giving people access to the portal and doing everything manually. But one of the questions that's come up is, what did you guys do for CI? Did you allow all of your development teams to build their own CI process and kind of bring that? Or did you end up creating an opinionated view on CI? So I'm gonna raise your question up a little higher. Um, the Cloud Steering Committee made a very strong decision to empower the developers. This comes back to being a cloud-first strategy, right? So we, we wanted to make sure that we would not be a bottleneck to letting the team move as quickly as they wanted to move. Um, and back to, you know, we have 1,800 engineers, right? So that's a lot of engineers. Um, and lots of them like different tools. So the agreement we created is we have a set of base tools that we use. Ansible is one of them. Jenkins is another one. So all of, all of these we support as a company for any, for any of our developers to utilize. That said, we create processes and, and um, policies for how you need to deliver stuff. You need to use automation, you need to use these gold-based images, you need to hook into some of these processes and prove to us that you're building it out securely. Um, but if you wanted to use Chef or Puppet or some other tool, we're okay with that, 
but then the team takes on the responsibility of spinning that up and maintaining it and running it. So we don't have a centralized version of that, whereas we have a centralized version and a managed version of our default, one called preferred environment, but we don't force our teams to use those. And this is why this becomes important, right? Because we make this available, and so during a team's CI CD process, if they need they need to rescan that. Instead of submitting their AMI to InfoSec and basically say, hey, you guys go ahead and scan this on your schedule, they can basically hook into our process and then we'll just, our code will just execute against their environment and scan it for them. And they become, they get the notification, they become the approver. So we're back to this in the beginning, right? Where we do the first step, we distribute it, then they, do the, they can do the second step and build, validate, and approve inside of their own space and publish for themselves. And it's still using the same code and um, meeting the same approvals. I just want to add something to what Tosin mentioned. So we have the Dev, uh, DevOps tools. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with our code uh, pipeline. Uh, and so you could choose to embed uh, into that framework that that Thorsten is talking about, so you could take advantage of that. There are sessions uh, on that if you want to know a little bit more in details, so that would be, uh, that would be fine. So, There's the next Hello, thank you very much for your presentation. About healthcare context, do you have any constraints uh, to solve about FDA or validation constraints? Do we have any constraints? I, I didn't catch the whole question. What is present is a uh, is can be used in other um, uh, company about healthcare uh, for uh, constraint for FDA, for example, in what you present. Do you have any topic uh, specifically in healthcare domain? The, all right, let me see if I understand, and I apologize. I, I always have a hard time with accents. Um, are you asking whether or not we believe this will scale, or um, what is the restriction that you're? You're, you're Any restriction you can find in healthcare com company? I mean, right now, this this have, we haven't run into anything. I mean, I, it's not designed, right? What's well? Okay, so this this is internally, um, and and the idea for me here is really to uh, uh, drive home the fact that you should automate this and build these things. We we have not. Uh, we're not in a position right now to uh, bring something out this um, as open source. It's, it's built on some core technology. Um, I think one of the nice things is we, you know, we have a close partnership with AWS, and so this whole AMI stuff, they're building, right, and, and have built, actually, and are, are making available. So um, I think you'll find more and more tools out there to do this. Um, our set of tools are not... Um, open source at this point. Uh, you know, we are huge fans of all the stuff that Netflix has put out and uh, Capital One uh, Cloud Custodian, if you're familiar with that, um, I would definitely recommend you look at that. That's another wonderful tool, um, but it's not an approach we've taken at this time. Right, so this, this is a proprietary to change healthcare, the, the tool sets around it. Um, and, but uh, the, the, look at the approach, look at the structure, um, the team and, and how uh, this can be um, leveraged. Uh, other companies are doing it and, and, and you can leverage the structure and, and framework 
that has been built. So. Hey, uh, looks like you have a very good automated process, right? A uh, couple of questions related to that is how do you uh, essentially uh, do vulnerability management on already the running EC2 instances and then coming back and updating your AMIs to address the vulnerabilities? The other part is also from an IAM provisioning perspective, you talked about when you gain access, but whenever roles are changing, people leaving, how, how have you automated that process? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm realizing now that I've gone through this so quickly, I probably should have slowed down and talked in more depth about some components. Um, I was mentally a little bit afraid of time. Uh, so, wow, that interferes. Um, so let me ask the, let me, let me do the roles thing first, right? So we, um, remember I said that we integrate in with, um, a single sign-on system. I jumped in there early on. You can see that in the shared services VPC, there's a single sign-on. Um, so we use our Active Directory and our single sign-on to help manage the roles. So um, what happens is um, if somebody leaves the company, uh, that's an event that happens in Active Directory and ultimately it comes down to us and uh, we deprovision them automatically. So their, their rights go away. Um, with the first question you had, could you repeat that one? It's about vulnerability management, like you know, uh, on the existing EC2 instances and coming back to your EMIs to address those vulnerabilities. Okay, um, what? Yeah, right. So we, we divide instances into two categories and one category I'm trying to kill. Um, so the two categories, the short term and long term, right? Short term is, is um, any instance that uh, you can blow away on a regular basis. And you know, back to treating everything as cattle and not pets, right? You have to, your EC2 instance is not some special thing that you handcrafted. It's something that you should blow away on a regular basis. And our policy is that all of your EC2 instances are refreshed every 30 days. And we publish all these AMIs automatically to your account every, well, every time this changes, but at least every 30 days. So you have a new AMI to deploy every 30 days. You should be able to, if your system is architected correctly, go in and make those deployments. If you have a long-term, long-running instance, if you have an instance that you cannot shut down, you didn't architect your system very well, but okay. Um, but let's just say it happens. For some bizarre reason, it's there. You then fall under a different category in our operations, where basically, yes, you are not participating in the normal deployment of everything is automated and everything changes. So we can't change the operating system underneath you. Um, but we basically work very hard with you um, to move you to a model where you don't have these special snowflakes in AWS. There's no need for them. Hey, I apologize for cramming two questions in, but um, <laughs> to summarize, really, containers and monitoring. So right. I, I'm wondering if you see, if you are making use of containers, and if you are not, where you see they um, having potential within your solution today, where they may help. And on the monitoring side, um, are you doing anything beyond um, CloudWatch? Um, okay, so 
Containers, yes, and let me see if I can come back to that. Monitoring, uh, we turn on CloudWatch obviously by default. We send stuff automatically to the um, security VPC. Um, also knows that there's shared logging happening in uh, the centralized VPC. You can put alerting rules on that and it can fire off events back to the command center um, so that your system needs attention. Um, and then um, the, the EC2 system manager can also watch the load on EC2 instances. So there's a variety of different ways, but we don't have, um, you know, back to a cloud-first approach for us, an AWS approach, we, we pretty much heavily rely on CloudWatch um, for most of our monitoring. Um, but you can also, if you're, if you're used to a more traditional model, you can use the back end um, and use the uh, Elk stack that's sitting there for the shared logging and uh, put some more events around that and, and treat it uh, in, in a slightly more classic way. Containers, um, yeah, they're different. Uh, I don't know how deep I want to get into it. We do use them. Um, specifically, you know, they, they live inside of this, this realm here, so you just put different containers on there. Um, we are working on a container gold image so that it's, you know, we can build out, we have a container repository and we build out containers the same way that we stamp out AMIs, at least, um, well, we, they run on the same op base operating system, but then the base container should be certified and um, validated in the same way. Um, we like them. Uh, we definitely like their flexibility. Um, we're investigating how to leverage them uh, more. The problem that I, and I don't want to speak too much out of turn with containers, you know, containers are great because they give you this ability to, um, you know, treat the operating system, treat the environment as another layer of abstraction that you don't have to worry about, um, and then just move your stuff across anything that can run those containers. You still have issues where you need to connect to outside services. Um, so if you're deep inside of AWS and you want to use Aurora and things like that, then you, don't, you can't take a container from that environment and just run it somewhere else, right? Because your, your external cloud dependencies don't come with you. If you wanted them to come with you, then you're building them, right? Then you're building them inside of the containers, which is like, okay, what abstraction, what abstraction level do I have then? I have that transportability, but I'm not getting the value out of using something that's a managed service. Uh, so we're, we're looking at it. Great. So if, if you are talking about on monitoring part, um, any tools or our partner provided tools, we can, we can take it offline and we can discuss that. So the, you know, like host base or inline monitoring or anything, then we can discuss that, okay? So we have sessions on that and if you have specific questions for the more details, we can talk about it. Hey, um, I have a question about, um, you really quickly went over um, your move to um, Cloud Health, and uh, you were doing some of the benchmarking internally and you moved it over and so on. Uh, I'd really like to understand in the world where, you know, at least in our business in healthcare, we have to do a lot of uh, BAA um, security audits. I'm really curious to know, like, when you use services like that, where does your internal team in the auditing process stop and services, benchmarking services or whatever, do they come into play? Because for us, there's a little bit of a, you know, an ROI question that I'd like to learn from, um, from folks like yourself to figure out, okay, when do we start outsourcing some of that and using some, some services for automating purely for the purposes of being able to um, report during an audit versus 
what do we need to do internally, and it's never worth it to hand it over to somebody else. Right. Um, so I think this is, and Akhtar, maybe you can correct me, this is the first time AWS has done a full healthcare track at reInvent. Um, and so you, know, you can tell that it's, this is becoming a very much, a, it's not that it wasn't a mature industry already, but it's now a maturing industry in the cloud. Um, I've been finding it really interesting in um, other committees that I sit on um, how much it's changed over the last couple of years where people aren't saying, boy, I, you know, I don't know about the cloud, to having an argument, which is basically, why would you not go to the cloud? Right? So it's the, the, the counter argument. Um, and uh, so from a compliance and audit perspective, uh, one of the key things that we had to do, and I, I really did gloss over this, um, way back in the beginning, uh, when we established this Cloud Center of Excellence, um, notice the, the third point on the top there, create core cloud policies and standards. And um, what we needed to do is go back and look at how did we interpret HIPAA? How did we interpret high trust for, for our company? What, what were our audit requirements during the time that we were in the data center? And how is that different now that we're in the cloud? So what, well, what, it is, it's interesting because the problem becomes a different kind of problem, right? There are certain rules and regulations that you, you need to show um, that are very clearly spelled out, but they, they really reflect the data center mindset. Um, how, does, how do you show how you're using Lambda and how you're securing Lambda in uh, AWS to meet the high trust compliance that have no idea what a serverless compute instance looks like. If this was appropriate to applaud, I would applaud that statement because that's a situation <laughs> we're in where we, you know, we want to use services like Lambda, but we're, we have to comply to audits that have questions regarding data center processes. Right. And, and so I'm wondering if using other services that are recognized, other yes. than your own inter internal core team, has, has prevented the need to even elaborate on some of those things and being able to just kind of hand off that credibility. We have, we have not discovered anybody outside yet that would, you know, where I could hand off an audit to them, basically say, hey, certify my environment and, under, and understand it correctly. They're just information sources to feed into the audit requests, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so what we're doing to solve this problem is we are gathering a ton of information. This also comes back to this whole least privilege thing, right? The, the way you make a change in the environment is in code, and that code goes into code storage. It's in Git, it's, and your name is attached to it, and the reason you made that change is attached to it, and it goes through an approval process and a deployment process. All of that is logged, and all of that is available, so when we go and have to supply information for our audit and basically say, yes, you're right, this Lambda doesn't you know, serverless is not a concept you have, but let us, let us walk you through how we know that the code we put there and the code that's executed is the code we want, right, and demonstrate that. And we have to, right now, um, fight with the auditors and fight with that process, and, and there's a large re-education thing happening, uh, which is why when AWS put Lambda on the BAA, that was such a big thing because they had to go to the same regulators and make the same arguments and basically demonstrate to them that, hey, yes, this meets those security requirements and this meets those audit requirements. Hi. Um, 
couple of networking questions. Uh, number one, you have the AWS Direct Connect with your corporate data centers. So, um, you know, one part of the question is, um, is that, uh, do you have like a hybrid model in terms of the application itself? And I try to avoid hybrid models as much as possible. Um, I like, personally, when I'm architecting systems, I like to use S3 as sort of the intermediary if I have to. So data center would put information in S3 that would kick off an event and then we'd start processing it on the back end. Um, I've had one team come to me and say, hey, I'd love to have a live data connection between these two databases that I want to keep synchronized. I'm like, no. <laughs> That's just setting yourself up for failure. Um, but you know, we connect because we have to share information. And, um, and with regards to that, so when you have uh, users um, access uh, your AWS uh, apps, is it more like role-based or do you have VPCs based on line, lines of businesses or uh, is there any other networking um, um, uh, you know, construct that you use between the, um, between the data center and uh, your AWS It's platform? role and identity-based. And um, we try very hard that everything that's in AWS just presents a, um, uh, an interface that someone else could consume, whether that's an a API interface or the, a web interface of some sort. Okay, thank you. There's so no low-level access. You would never have somebody in the data center log on to a SQL server that's running on AWS using SQL authentication or something like that. That would never happen. I in think in addition, we talk about the single sign-on and how the integrated security is being used, so, so, so you will be leveraging all the tools will be leveraging that single security, uh, single sign-on through this to do all the changes and updates to that thing, so, so thank you. All right, uh, we're up to two minutes, so one last question. Okay, um, well, it's pretty interesting, uh, everything you've shown here. Um, uh, regarding the audit auditing, all these solutions, it's, it's something that it's uh, for us in the healthcare uh, industry, it's, uh, it's a challenge. <laughs> Uh, for the regulators and everything to be in compliance and everything. Um, I was just wondering how long did it take for you to reach this level of maturity on all your process and the tools that you're using um, in general? So that's, but, but having a model that you've just shown, we wouldn't have to spend, we wouldn't well, have I to Well, I would recommend you start with 2017. So, so that, that gap is, is about a year for a team of 10 people. So um, we, we went heads down for almost a year to develop every, all of the automation tools um, and uh, review all of the policies and write all of our cloud. I mean, some of it really, you know, back to um, you know, this slide here, right? I mean, some of it is just documentation, right? You just gotta go back and take a look at what does high trust really say? What do the rules really mean? And how do you interpret them in the cloud? So um, it, we, we spent a good solid year on this. Right, and you counted on outsourcing uh, partners for these as well? No, so we've, this is so new, and um, the way I've explained it as well is it's our interpretation of our policies on top of AWS. I really can't outsource that to somebody. Now maybe I could bring a consultant in and have them give me some words of wisdom about best practices and ideas, but it's my policies, it's my standards, and I'm encoding them into the environment. You know, back to the billings, right? If a billing tag doesn't show up, shutting the system down, right? That's my policy. It doesn't have to be yours. Right, yeah. 
Right. Thank you. It's a good example. It's a very good question, and you need to understand that it's an evolution that you do. Uh, so as you mature, as you move forward, um, more needs are required, and then you embed them slowly as you go. But you, I think Torsten mentioned up front, very early, automate, automate, automate. So, so that is the keyword here. And once you do the automation, and then you do this infrastructure as a code, so you have the ability to update, change, do anything uh, as, you, as you mature, as you add on more compliance, more requirements, more of those policies. All right. Well, thank you so much. One more.